Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Viborg Thun, and tonight I have a special treat for you, dear listener. We travel from the booming corporate town of Houston, Texas, and move south across the Rio Grande and enter one of the three largest cities in the world, Mexico City. Here, we are met with a tall woman who sits in prison. Her name is Juana Barraza, and she is suspected of having killed up to 49 elderly women in cold blood. To inform us of this fascinating case of a female serial killer, I have with me on this show the author of a great book named The Little Old Lady Killer. Her name is Susana Vargas Cervantes, and I am honored to have her as a guest on this show. The bonus content of the $10 Plus Club includes an expose into the Norwegian black metal artist, murderer, and Satanist Varg Vikenes, a detailed look into the history of the death penalty around the world, a video movie review of the excellent film Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, and an American radio station interviewing your humble host. More bonus features are coming up with a wide variety of interesting topics. If you have a specific topic you would like to hear me talk about, aside from serial killers, feel free to let me know on facebook.com slash the SK podcast. If you want to join the exclusive ranks of the TSK $10 plus club, go to patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast and donate Ten dollars or more now. Miss Vargas, welcome so much to the show. I'm very happy to have you as a guest. Before we get started with the interview proper, I would like to make it known that I do not speak Spanish. And as such, I must apologize beforehand for my atrocious pronunciation of Spanish names and places. My podcast is as you probably know, dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. 
media often tend to focus a lot on a dozen or so serial killer superstars, mostly British or American serial killers at that. On my show, I make an effort to cover all serial killer cases, both lesser-known ones and those from outside the United States of America. As such, I am very happy to have you on, as your excellent book covers an extremely fascinating case, a female serial killer from Mexico. Before we delve into the meat of the serial killer case, can you tell my dear listeners a bit about yourself, who you are, your background, and your reason for authoring this book? Sure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I really enjoy your podcast. My name is Susana. I'm from Mexico City, but spent a lot of time in Montreal. So I'm considering myself half Mexican and half Canadian. I started to, you know, in Canada, listen to Mexican news. And one morning I heard of a story of a female wrestler serial killer that had been arrested. So that really was never unheard of. I grew up in Mexico City and had never heard of a serial killer in Mexico. I grew up thinking that was something that, as you mentioned, happened in the United States or in England and never knew it could happen outside. So that was the first thing that I was very curious about. What is it about a serial killer that only happened in these specific countries? And from then on, I started pursuing this investigation. And uh, let's just focus a bit on this serial killer in question, Juana Barraza, and her childhood. Was there evidence of abuse when she was growing up? Did she experience bullying? Was the household she grew up in a happy one, with both parents present, or did she come from a broken home? Please extrapolate as much as you'd like on Barraza's beginnings. What we know about Barraza's childhood and about her life has been what news reports have reported on the case after she was arrested and specifically on two long interviews that a criminologist and police officer, Martin Barron, performed on her and then also on the director of the neurophysiological department, the National University in Mexico, Fregi Ostrowski. When I talked to Barraza, I mostly listened and I, and she focused a lot of her conversation on her children, so not a lot on her childhood. That to say that what I'm about to tell you is what I've learned from these interviews and what news media has reported. So she definitely had a very broken childhood. She was a daughter of an alcoholic that when she was only 13 years old, sold her for beers. I don't know if she experienced bullying because I don't think she went to school. She, When she was arrested, she didn't know how to read or write. And when she was sold for three beers, she was sold to an older man who was also an alcoholic and who basically had her as a slave in his house for more than five years. She was rescued after by uncles or her stepfather. The stories on her childhood are very contradictory, as in who rescued her, if it was her uncles or her stepfather. But I think it is safe to say that she definitely had a very difficult childhood full with a lot of violence and abuse. That's very interesting. You said she was sold to a man at the age of 13. Did I hear that right? That's right. That's terrible. As an aside, 
is child prostitution something that is still prevalent in Mexico or has it been uh, taken care of? Unfortunately, it is something that happens a lot in Mexico still to this day, specifically in a province outside of uh, Mexico City, very close called Tlaxcala. It actually has been the capital of trafficking. It focuses mostly on young girls. And as I trace in the book, it is also what happened to Malitzin. She is an indigenous woman from Mexico who is, according to official narrative stories of how Mexico was constructed as a nation, the first woman to betray the people, her people. Although there were many different communities of indigenous peoples in Mexico, and they all were against the Aztecs, so they allied with the Spanish to be against the Aztecs, many of them. And La Malitzin has been blamed historically for being the only responsible for betraying the nation, even though there was not a nation yet. She was sold also by her mother when she was very young, when she was probably also no more than 14 years old, and she was sold by her mother as a slave. So unfortunately, that is the story that originates nation like Mexico, and it continues to happen for many young girls in Mexico, including Juana Barraza. That is such a sad tale, and... uh... Very tragic to hear that it's still going on. I uh, understand that Mexico is in the midst of a uh, crime epidemic, and it's very violent due to the various cartels being at war with each other. That's right, and it has been for a while. So many of the tortures and violence that, that these cartels exercise on population are very, very gruesome, very hard to hear, hard to stomach, hard to understand. There's a a specific chronicling of violence in Mexico, a news genre, we can say, that is called Nota Roja. Maybe sort of like yellow journalism, and there's a lot of true crime stories that photographs don't have any censorship. And we can say that since 2006 to date, there's a lot of reporting on the crimes that cartels have done that includes dismembering, torturing bodies. Unfortunately, this is the case too for victims of feminicides in Mexico. Many of the women are found after having suffered a lot of torture with a lot of their body parts mutilated. Many of them have been found in mixed in really huge barrels of cement. It is really terrible what happens in terms of violence in Mexico. And that is also what called my attention for this research when it was first announced that there was a serial killer in Mexico. The chief prosecutor stated that what happened, I'm going to cite him, what happened to us today didn't happen to us before. It only happened in movies and in the United States. But unfortunately, crime has been globalized. So we are living in a very dehumanized society. That called my attention because In Mexico, there are stories of narco-satanicos, that is, drug traffickers who kill bodies to perform satanic rituals. There are the multiple thousands of feminicides of, of young brown women in Mexico. There's also the violence explicit in Nota Roja, yet serial killing was an unknown phenomenon, and it seemed for chief prosecutor, for police, for news media, to be more horrible than any of the other crimes. So I was interested in understanding why 
serial killing that is normally talked as killing for the pleasure of killing was worse than narcosatanicos, than feminicides, than why it was worse this understanding of killing for the pleasure of killing when there's drug cartels that one can argue very easily also kill for the pleasure of killing. That's a very good uh, point of view, and uh, it's problematic, to say the least, that um, they frame the case as they do when, as you say, there are such brutal and uh, gruesome and extensive and prolific murders going on every day, uh, simply because those murders are committed by by narcos rather than uh, psychopathic serial killers. But let us, um, let us move a bit on in the interview here. And uh, we've talked about Baraza's uh, background as a child and young woman. Let us move on to her adult life, aside from her brutal crimes. I read that Baraza was a professional wrestler. Please elaborate on this. And also please tell us about her day-to-day life in Mexico. For example, where she lived. Was she poor, wealthy, middle class? What car did she have? Her children, etc. Let me start from telling you about where she lived. She lived in outside of Mexico City, a state called Estado de Mexico. At the time of her detention in 2006, there were other very horrific crimes happening in that same state. Actually, in Estado de Mexico, more feminicides have occurred than in Ciudad Juarez, that is known internationally because of the killing of women. It is thanks to the work of activists, feminist activists and academics that we know about feminicide in Ciudad Juarez, but the ones in Estado de Mexico had been, had been kept on the radar. But there's some researchers and academics that state that feminicides in Estado de Mexico happened at a more alarming rate than those in Ciudad de Mexico. And they happened at the same time that Juana Barraza's crimes were discovered in the same state. That called my attention too. Why you see that? the killings of an alleged serial killer count more for media and press than the killings of indigenous women or mestiza women in Estado de Mexico. Estado de Mexico is a state that is one of the poorest of all Mexico. There is no infrastructure that supports the, the, the state, the city. The governor in turn at that time was Enrique, Enrique Peña Nieto, who then later became the president of Estado de Mexico. In where she lived, when, where Barraza lived, she had her own house. She started wrestling out of love for Lucha Libre. In Lucha Libre, there's two different types of wrestlers. Those that are called roots and those that are called technical. The technical wrestlers went to proper schooling and they always play by the rules. And the roots, they never play by the rules and they will use any tactic in the rest in a wrestling match in order to win. So normally when a wrestling match happens, you have technicals against roots. Juana Barraza's name for her wrestling persona was La Dama del Silencio, that is the Lady of Silence. And she fought as a ruda. And as she said in a TV interview on national TV just a week before she was arrested as the alleged serial killer of old women, she said she was a ruda from the bottom of her heart, that she loved wrestling and she was portrayed as a really fan of, of a wrestler, of Lucha Libre. When she was arrested and named to be the serial killer, La Mata Viejitas, her wrestling practice 
became another evidence of her alleged pathological uh, criminality. I argue in the book that it was more actually the lady of silence who is being criminalized more so than the woman Juana Barraza because it is her body described as muscular, her body described as very strong and then becoming evidence of her criminality. She's uh, talked as muscular, as masculine, and actually it is reported that when she was 35 years old, due to a spinal injury, she stopped wrestling. And for criminologists, this became evidence that how it is normally believed for serial killers that they kill out of a need for excitement, that the need for excitement that the wrestling was in her life and she could not perform anymore because of her spinal injury, then lead the way to her killings. It was that same need for excitement that serial killers have, that first she satisfied with wrestling matches, that then she could not satisfy anymore, and then she had to kill. In most of the evidence of her being the serial killer police were struggling to find for over two years, they normally cite the wrestling persona she had, La Dama del Silencio. It is as if La Dama del Silencio became La Mataviejitas, and it is this merging of of personas that criminalizes Juana Barraza but doesn't end up making her responsible for her crimes. I don't know if that's been made clear. That Um, was excellent. I don't know much about her day-to-day when she was not um, arrested, but in prison, I found very interesting when I met her that when we met, she was coming back from her activity. Every Friday, she walks elderly women in prison. That is her activity, and that is something that she chose to do and that she's responsible for elderly women having walks at the prison where she is currently living. And other days, she sells quesadillas. She's also known for being a good cook. But when she was out, I don't know really how her everyday went. Can you tell me a bit about her children? Yes. When I met with her, it really gained my attention that she focused the conversation and we spoke for more than two hours on her children. She told me that exactly the day that I visited her, her daughter had finished university. She took pride on being a good mother. She actually told me that she can be anything that you or I or any media criminologist wanted, but a a bad mother that she was not. She has three children, two boys and a girl. She, when she was kidnapped, we can say, or when she was living with the man that she was sold to when she was 13, she had an abortion and then she had another kid, a son, but he was killed in a beating in front of her when he was only 12 years old. It's very sad. She has also grandkids. She seems to take a lot of pleasure on them visiting her in prison. You mentioned that she has a daughter, but uh, I think I read that she had more than one kid. What were the other children? So... Barraza had in total three children, a 16-year-old daughter and two sons. I don't know exactly what these two sons do. Barraza is um, very private about her personal life. A traditional or an international narrative on serial killing is that serial killers crave fame. They want to be known. And... They give a lot of interviews or they want to become like celebrities. 
But unlike this international narrative, Juana Barraza doesn't like to give interviews and she doesn't like to talk about her private life. So when I met her, I asked her why she had agreed to talk with me. And she said that she was not scared anymore. But before, she had been threatened with the life of her children. And now she didn't have anything else to lose. I think she has suffered a lot of stigma being called the first serial killer in Mexico City. And her children suffer a lot of bullying in school and, and a lot of stigmatization in school from being the kids of Juana Barraza. So she was very careful of not talking much about them because she didn't want to put them in danger or she didn't want them to suffer. She told me that they have destroyed her life and that they had destroyed the life of her children. So she was very careful about and very private about her personal life. And she told me she didn't like when news media talk about a lot of her personal life. I see. That's very interesting because it is, as you say, quite normal for uh, serial killers to crave attention. And even though most of them try to avoid being captured, a lot of them crave attention by going to the media and taunting the police and public with letters and uh, posing of bodies and, and such. But um, Baraza didn't do that. And um, before we go into the grisly details of the murders, I'd like to ask you one thing based on what you have told me so far, and that she, Baraza, she's a very fascinating person. I mean, she's colorful, she's complex, a very tragic background, she's a wrestler, serial killer. But I had never heard of her, and coverage of her in the West is very limited. I'm guessing she is quite extensively covered in Mexico, but why do you think the West has ignored such a massive serial killer case? I think that the West, if, if it is not written in English, ignores a lot of things about not only Mexico, but other countries. I think that is as simple as a language barrier, but also as complicated as colonialism. There's not much written on Barraza in English. And I think that is also why we don't, like in the West, we don't know much about her. I see. That sounds like a plausible explanation. I cover a lot of international serial killers on my show, and um, Google Translate is my very, very good personal friend. <laughs> of course. It, it really works well. Yes. So let's move on to what many of my listeners probably are waiting for, and that is the killings. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, 
and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. How did Baraza begin killing? What triggered it? And tell us about her first murder, if you can. And do not be shy about details. I think it's very important that we never shy away from the true horror of the acts committed by serial killers. There are very uh, contradicting stories about when was her, her first kill and how is she being classified as as a psychopath or not a psychopath. For example, when this is the very first time in Mexico that there is a task force for a specific serial killer. It is the first time that a serial killer is has a nickname, is being profiled, then caught, sentenced, trialed, and is now in prison. It has not happened outside of Juana Barraza in Mexican history before or to date. When police first announced the possibility of a serial killer and had a profile on him, they said that, of course, he was a he. They didn't think that a woman could do those murders. Then following international narratives and serial killing, they said that he was brilliant, that he acted so smartly so to not leave any fingerprints, that maybe they were even going to take 20 years to catch him. The police in France actually came to Mexico to give a training on serial killing to the police in Mexico. And they were uh, following all the international narratives of serial killing as a, as a species of persons. Juana Barraza has, was caught red-handed after she had strangled an elderly woman with a stethoscope. She doesn't talk much about her crimes, but all the crimes that are attributed to the little old lady killer are 49. When 49 elderly women were missing, that's when police decided there was a serial killer on the loose and profiled him. Witnesses kept on saying that it had a wig, makeup, was very tall, was a woman, but police could not conceptualize of a woman serial killer. So they then decided that it was a man dressed in women's clothing and then arrested a lot of sex workers transvestized in Mexico. And after none of them matched their fingerprints, they were released and chief police officer said, well, it might not be a transvestite, but we are sure is a transgender. And when finally Juana Barraza was arrested red-handed out of lock and just really a fortuitous encounter, then the whole narrative changed. News headlines read, the little old lady killer is caught, she is a woman. And that's the very first time that she's been called a woman. And it is her wrestling practice what gave media the perfect sensational story. She was exiting a house where an 82-year-old woman had been strangled and left on the floor. And Renter was coming home to find her. Barraza has only confessed to that crime, but that was the modus operandi of the serial killer, the little old lady killer. And I say this because there's been other two people who are now also in prison, one woman and one man, also for killing elderly women with the same pattern. The pattern was suffocating elderly women with an stethoscope, with that robe of her, with the tide of her robe, with tights, 
but the modus operandi was suffocation. When police found out that Juana Barraza was a wrestler as La Dama del Silencio, then they also thought that she might use wrestling match keys. That's how they are called, you know, the movements that the wrestler makes to defeat their opponent. They said that she also used many of these to, to kill elderly women. We don't know if this is true or not, but the modus operandi of this specific alleged little old lady killer is through suffocation, sometimes with bare hands. Juana Barraza also doesn't talk about her crimes. When I met with her, she said that she was only in prison for one crime. She has been sentenced for 16, and other people have been arrested for other crimes, also of elderly women, also through suffocation. And there's more than 33 unresolved cases. They always were murdered inside their homes. This was the other MO attributed to the Mataviejitas because these elderly women live alone and they were registered to a program of aid, social aid for elderly people in Mexico City. This only happened in Mexico City and this program of social aid only was taking place at the time in Mexico City. And so apparently the serial killer had the a list of all the elderly women registered in this program will disguise as a nurse working for this program and then will go and find them in a park or as, uh, close to a park or a garden. And then when they found out that she lived alone, will go to their house under the pretext of giving them money or signing them to this program or something that had to do with this social aid program. And once there, they will suffocate them and take very little of their, of their belongings. Really, they were not killing for money or for robbery because, and I say they because there's at least three people in prison that had the same, that follow the same pattern. They took very pity cash and all the women were murdered on suffocated. Some reports said that Juana Barraza killed them with her bare hands and that she killed out of rage against her mother and or out of rage because they treat her really badly because she then was the narrative change from the serial killer as brilliant to once Barraza was arrested as an analphabet and pathological. The way that her murders are described by news media and criminologists is as a born serial killer. She killed out of this necessity to feed this insatiable need to kill with her bare hands. This is what criminologists have reported, but she doesn't talk much about those specific crimes or how she did it. When I talked to her, she was she struck me as, or I don't know if this is manipulative or, you know, her sincerity can be questioned, but she was very like sensitive. And she did tell me that she would never take someone's life because that would be mediocre. She also said that she could alleviate someone from their suffering. As you say, it is, I don't think there is one specific answer to your questions, but many different things that play into why she killed or how she killed. I see. That was a very good description and explanation of her case. And I was very surprised to learn that uh, there might be more than just one killer. So thank you for that information. Let us keep focus on Baraza for now. You mentioned in your excellent book, that Barraza is the first recognized female serial killer in Mexico. You also mention that aside from Barraza, there are only a very few cases of serial murder in Mexican history. 
You mentioned two Mexican Ripper cases of El Chalaquero and Gregorio Cardenas, but those were active respectively 131 and 77 years ago. On this show, I have previously covered the case of the Godfather of Matamoros, which occurred quite recently and surely can be considered a serial murder case. Do you think that there are no other known cases in Mexico than uh, Baraza and the ones I've just mentioned? Well, to clarify, there have been many serial killers in Mexico. Well, not many, as in other countries, but there there have been the ones you mentioned that that both of them, El Chalequero and Goyo Cárdenas, have been dubbed the Mexican Jack the Reapers. When they were arrested, especially El Chalequero, who was around the same time as Jack the Reaper in London, the way this serial killer was talked about in media was as an accolade, a sign of progress from Mexico. It is as if, okay, Now, Mexico has serial killers. We are a nation that is civilized and we have, we are modernized. We're not anymore, you know, a country that had just recently gained independence from Spain. Now we are a modern country. And it is after Goyo Cárdenas, who, as you also said, was more than 70 years ago, 77 years ago, it's as if Mexico had covered its quota for serial killers, and that was like now a nation in progress, society that suffered the same maladies as industrialized societies like Anomi. But there were, like you said, also Matamoros. Actually, the same day that they arrested Juana Barraza and named her the serial killer of elderly women, the little old lady killer. They also arrested another guy. His name is Raul Osequiel Marroquin. And he was then called the Matagays, the gay killer or the sadistic, because he actually was even more sadistic in his killings than Juana Barraza. He took seduced men from the Zona Rosa, that will be the gay village in Mexico City, will take them to a hotel, will have sexual encounters with them, and then will kill them, dismember them, stuff their bodies in suitcases, and leave them in different parts of Mexico City. He had done that at least with four people, and no one was looking for a serial killer of homosexuals in Mexico City. There was no profile, no posters, no task force. We didn't even know there was serial killer of gays or a sadistic, as he was then named. But when he was arrested, he said that he would do it even more smartly as to not get caught. And he confessed to his murders. And then he was called the sadistic. There's also the poeta cannibal, so the cannibal poet who killed women, also dismembered them, and then he many times cooked them and ate them. They were his ex-girlfriends. And when he was arrested, he was then called the poeta cannibal, the serial killer. So there's been serial killers that they have been named as such, but after their arrest. There's also the case of Las Poquianchis. It's really sad and horrible case of three sisters that in the state of Guanajuato in the 60s run a brothel. They took many young girls, traffic, trafficking young girls, lure them into their brothels, telling them they will be working as domestic work, doing domestic work in houses, many times taking them from their families, buying them of their families, and they prostitute them in brothels. And when they will get pregnant, they will perform abortions, kill the fetuses and burn them in the garden. They also many times kill these girls and put their bodies into cement walls 
and they had this business going on, many reports with the complicity of police. And it was because a young girl was able to escape and went to the police station and talked about all these crimes that finally police went and saw everything happening right there in their brothel. You know, there's many varied definitions of what constitutes a serial killer. So sometimes in some in some narrations, these three sisters who are called Las Pocchiantes, they are also named serial killers. In other official accounts of serial killers in Mexico, they don't count because they didn't do it in a period of 72 hours. But there's definitely been, even in this same case of the little old lady killer, more than one people killing elderly women. So that is exactly what called my attention. Why is it that this is the very first time in Mexican history that a serial killer is named as such before their arrest? And did you get a conclusive answer to your question? Yes, I did. In my opinion, this is the only time in Mexican history that a serial killer has been named as such before it's captured because she was killing elderly women. And elderly women are the only ones that have counted as victims for the, for the nation. They are the only ones that have shocked, that their killings have shocked the nation. And they are considered vulnerable, not because they are old, but because they live alone. And in a society like Mexico that is centered and grounded and think of itself as founded on moral and family values, when a serial killer that is thought of emerging in a society that is individualistic, where there are no family values, is what shocked the nation. So why a serial killer that, you know, happens, like the chief prosecutor said, happen in movies and happen in the United States, a society that is so individualistic is happening in Mexico, where we have family values. And when we have moral values, where we have, despite narco-satanicos, despite poquianchis, despite the um, Goyo Cárdenas or El Poeta Caníbal or cartels like Los Zetas, we have a society that is humanized, that, again, to quote chief persecutor, respects their elderly. If these women were vulnerable, it was because they live alone. And that, to police, spoke of a dehumanized society because they were abandoned by, by their families and they were abandoned by society. To police, it didn't occur to them that these elderly women might have chosen to live alone. For them, they were vulnerable because they live alone out of being abandoned by their family. And this was the MO of the serial killer. because He preyed on them because they were abandoned and they didn't know to do anything other than to mother. Then when anyone knock at their door, of course, these elderly women will open the door and offer them a cup of tea or wanted to be a mother's to them because for police, they couldn't think of any other reason why or any other role for women in Mexico except for being a mother and very self-abnegating, self-sacrificing mother. So this is what made their modus, define the, mod, the modus operandi more so than the um, investigation of the actual case. So elderly women were desexualized. They were self-abnegating, sacrificing mothers. They were basically the Virgin of Guadalupe, that is an institution in Mexico. So they counted as victims, and in turn, they made a criminal. In turn, they defined a criminal. They defined a serial killer. I see. That's, that's a very nuanced perspective and a very interesting one, especially from an academic point of view. Uh, let us talk about something a bit on the side of that theory. And uh, 
I seem to have read somewhere, maybe in your book, maybe on Wikipedia, that um, Baraza was accused of worshipping this uh, illegal saint, the uh, Santa de la Muerte or something like that. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I think you might have read it in the book because there's a whole chapter on her adoration to La Santa Muerte that we can call the Holy Death that is banned from the Catholic religion in Mexico. So the, the saint that has this holy dead that looks very much like a, a skeleton, it is white and it has very elegant gowns. The gowns are white like a bride or sometimes black as if she was grieving. And you can find altars to the Holy Dead in different street corners in Mexico City, but mostly of very poor neighborhoods. The neighborhood where Barraza de Juan is one of the poorest in Mexico. And when they went to her house, they found an altar to La Santa Muerte, to Buddha, a serpent, an apple, dollars, a glass with water. And police focus on, not on the statue of Buddha, but on the statue of Holy Dead. Because both in Mexico and the States, it is believed, oh, and another saint of Narcos, Martin Valverde. And both in Mexico and United States, it is believed that it is the saint of drug traffickers, of criminals, and it is their, their adoration is very stigmatized. So for police and criminologists, this became an, another evidence that Juana Barraza was indeed the little old lady killer because she had an altar to La Santa Muerte and amulets. There is actually literature that the FBI has. You can Google it and find it online for their police force in which they state that they do see a lot of drug dealers having Martin Valverde, the saint of narcs, and that as soon as they see that as a keychain or having it on their car, they have to inspect that car or question that subject that has a keychain because for sure they are going to find drugs. So when police found in Mexico City that Barraza adorated the Santa Muerte, that spoke to her criminality because she is doing something that is for working class, delinquents. We can say that the Holy Dead is a sinister sister of La Virgin de Guadalupe because according to the people that pay homage to her, you can be more direct with La Santa Muerte. Actually, the, the rise of this cult in Mexico can be traced at the same time as neoliberal economies hit the nation, and there was any more, no more protection from the state. There was a, a real crisis in faith. So Mexico, who had been conceived as a very Catholic, but specifically to the Virgin of Guadalupe, adoration, then many of their Sador cult believers felt betrayed by her and then went to the Holy Dead because she's believed to be more fair. You can, you know, she can understand if you have to do some illegal uh, selling of technology, of rob, of things that are, you know, rob, robbed, or because she can be more fair. You're rich, you're poor, you're white, or you're brown, she's going to take you anyway. And you can be more, more straightforward with her. You can say, listen, I'm a drug addict, and, or I'm a drug trafficker, or I you know, traffic with iPhones that are a big commodity in Mexico, but I need to do it for my family, or I need to do it because there's no other options. Then she will be more fair, and she will, you know, forgive you for that or understand it. And that's not the case with the Virgin of Guadalupe. So all the 
cult to La Santa Muerte is a bit, that's why it happens on the streets in poor neighborhoods in Mexico City. And there's the churches are the church or the altars that have just like a clear window in a corner of uh, Mexico City. They are attacked a lot. There's one that used to be close to where I lived that I will pass by with my bicycle very often on my way to have a coffee or whatever. And I will see their windows broken very often. And one time I asked and they said that it was actually Catholics who they thought were doing that to them because it's it's very stigmatized to adorate holy dead. And as I said, to police, then this became evidence that Juana Barraza was a criminal. I see. Thank you so much. That was very enlightening. And um, you mentioned earlier in the interview that uh, the number of victims are thought to be 49. How many do you think, in your educated opinion, that Barraza actually killed? It will be very hard for me to say a number because there are other people that also killed elderly women. And I'm sure there's also other ones that we don't know about. The case was closed after the arrest of Juana Barraza, and there's more unresolved murders. There's many contradictions with this story, and it's very hard to tell a number for me. I see. And she has only admitted one kill, that's right? That's right. Mm. And she is sentenced for 16. Sentenced for 16. Was there physical evidence for those other 15 murders that she denies having committed? Well, um, in the book, at the end, I list all the contradictions that I found in the narratives that criminologists and police officers had. Because they, when they were looking for the serial killer, they said that they, have, they had only fragments of fingerprints in 11 of the, on, the, on the crime scenes. And then they also had said that these fragments could not, didn't really were very useful because they didn't have a database which they could match them with. But then when Juana Barraza was arrested, they said, we have enough fragments of these fingerprints to conclude that she is indeed the little old lady killer. She, she could have done 16. She could have done more. But we don't know. Interesting. That's uh, always frustrating for especially the, um, the, the ones left behind, the families of the victims and so on, to to never know for certain if the right culprits have been caught or not. Yes. I am sure they are going to not know because it is very troubling how the investigation happened, all the contradictions. A lot of it is because they were following international narratives on serial killing more so than looking at the evidence and following witnesses' accounts or focusing on that specific case. Because serial killing and serial killers are believed to be a species of person that is very particular. And as you said, it's very much a product of United States and England that when it happens outside, it is more professional for police to follow these international narratives of it being a man, middle age, just like you and me, very charismatic, very smart, instead of looking at actual evidence in front of them. Indeed. Now, we are running out of time, but I'd like to, uh, to wrap this up with uh, your interview with Baraza in prison. How did she present herself today? Uh, how does she look? And how would you describe her as a person, knowing what she is and her background? And if you 
had met her and didn't know anything about her background, what would you have thought of her then? When I saw her, I bumped into her as I was going to the room where we were going to meet to talk, but she was coming to the office where I was waiting for her. I had to lift my face. I am about 5'5", which I thought was normal, but when I'm outside of Mexico, I'm perceived as short, and in Mexico, I'm perceived as average. So when I bump into her, I had to lift my face and really had to look up to be able to see hers. So I followed what News had stated as 175. So that is also very tall. But actually, just measuring me against her, I think he's taller than that. I think she's taller than 175. That is what news reports. So if I had met her on the street, I would be still impressed by her height because that is not average in Mexico. So that calls your attention. When I met her, she, I was struck by how healthy she looked. Her skin looked very well taken care of. Her hair was still dyed a sort of copper blonde as it appeared in the photographs when she was first arrested. She was wearing electric blue eyeliner, so it was very hard not to focus on that and look her directly in the eye. And she had a perfect set of like small white teeth and she was very smiley. And very endearing. She spoke with a very soft voice and she smiled a lot, even with her eyes. This really called my attention because criminologists had stated that Juana Barraza, like the rest of the serial killers in the world, had a very harsh and calculating look. And I'm sure that when she perpetrates violence, or like, you know, when anyone perpetrates violence, might have a very intense look. But when I met her, when I sat in front of her, her look was very soft and she smiled even with her eyes. You can Google now, an interview is still up online, an interview with her when she was at a wrestling match, the national TV, TV Azteca showed she was being interviewed about wrestling and if she was a fan or not, and if she was a Ruda del Corazón or not. And when you see that interview, you see a very charismatic, a very charismatic woman. And when that interview broadcast nationally, no one thought thought that she looked like the sketches that they had put out. And when she was arrested, they said that she was incredibly similar to the sketches but you could get a sense of how she looks. She, she looked, that's what stroke, that's what really caught my attention, that she looked very healthy and that she was very charismatic and smiled even with her eyes. I see. Well, thank you so much for your insight. Can you please tell my dear listeners the full name of your book and how they can purchase it? Yes, the full name is The Little Old Lady Killer, The Sensationalized Crimes of Mexico's First Female Serial Killer. And they can purchase it directly from NYU Press or Amazon. Thank you. I'm sorry I was so nervous. That is not a problem at all. I think you did very well. I enjoyed thoroughly talking to you, and uh, it's always a pleasure to get some insight into international cases, not just the, uh, the cases in North America and Britain. And this case is indeed quite a unique one. And uh, thanks to you, my listeners now have broadened their horizon. So, I hope you have a good day, and thank you for coming to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you too. Hope you have a good day. Goodbye. Goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And so ends the story of the little old lady killer, Juana Barraza. For now. Next week, I will give you a fresh new serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. This podcast would not be possible if it had not been for my dear patrons who pledge their hard-earned money every month. There are especially a few of those patrons I would like to thank in person. These patrons are my 17 most loyal patrons. They have contributed for at least the last 35 episodes, and their names are Maud, Amber, Anne, Christina, Claudette, Cody, Evan, Jennifer, Kathy, Lisa, Lisbeth, Mark, Mickey, Philip, PJ, Russell, Sam, and Troy. You really help produce this show and you have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. If you wish to join this exclusive club of TSK producers, go to theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate and pledge $15 or more to have your name read live on this show. Thank you. Good night and good luck. Good luck.